This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. In this UK Coaching podcast, I talk to Doug Lomov. Doug is the author of books and the Teach Like a Champion blog. He's best known for his book, Teach Like a Champion, which draws the lines between coaching and teaching. Doug and I discuss a variety of topics, zooming in on the principles of practice design for learning, effective feedback and observation skills. When you are reflecting on this podcast, consider the changes you might consider making over a period of time to your coaching practice to give the athletes in your care the best possible experience and support. We really hope that you enjoy listening to the podcast. Okay, hello and welcome to our Coach Developer Conversation. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today with uh, Doug Lamov. Uh, Doug, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so within the conversation today and within the, the podcast, there's, there's a few things that we're going to try and explore. Um, practice of design for learning. We're going to look at effective feedback. We're going to talk about observation and checking for understanding as well as hopefully a whole, whole load of other things that, that's going to be interesting to coaches and coach developers. Effective coaching practice is the practice that develops, that best develops people, individuals to become, um, you know, their optimal selves at the sport, at the sport or whatever the activity that they love. So, you know, I just think it's it's a focus on uh, on the development of people. Fantastic, Ace, and I think the vast majority of the audience listening to this, who are either supporting coaches directly or working with um, a range of people, uh, a range of by creating a learning environment for coaches, then then I think that, that this is going to be really helpful to kind of think about their own practice and how they design learning and and create create more sticky as a sticky learning experience. I suppose. Yeah, and you know I think that's a that's it's a simpler thing to say than to do because there are so many things that distract us from from that, that focus. You know, I think I, I th- winning is important, right? It's uh, it's not irrelevant to athletic endeavor. But it's easy to be distracted by it and have it become the goal. For example, you know, uh, and, you know whether U fourteen players win <laughs> win the tournament this weekend is uh, uh, is not that important in the long run. But it can become uh, it can become important, and maybe too important sometimes in the short runs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, a quick question, just to kind of get this kicked off. Um, and I'd normally leave this type of question to the end, but I think it was a great one to start off with. So we're, we're going to go on a three-day road trip, all expenses paid. Um, where, where would we go and who might we see based on the experiences that you've had on your journey? Yeah, well, obviously we're going to end up Sunday at Wembley um, <laughs> because we're, <laughs> we're three days before, uh, we're taking this three days before England, Italy. So that'll be great. Uh, and I'm looking forward and the all expenses paid part is great. So we can, uh, can hit a pub beforehand or something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But since we're going to see the pinnacle on Sunday, I think on Saturday, I think it would be really useful to watch, to go to some grassroots football training or sport training and watch the introductory experience that young athletes have to sport and the role that it plays in, in, in their lives. Because I just think um, it's fascinating. And they're, they're incredible people doing doing work at that level uh, with you know, with care and passion. Um, but so often I think in the coaching field, you know, the status and the stature are in the older grades and the more elite player in the more elite players. But I think so much of the journey for young athletes is shaped by what happens on, you know, on parks and school grounds when, you know, for eight and 10 and 12 year olds. So I want to, I mean, so so Saturday for us is let's try and take a a statistical sample of, you know, what we see for young people of all, you know, of all ability levels when they they engage their sports. And then Friday, the first day of our road trip, maybe let's, uh, to mix it up a little bit, I think it'd be really fascinating to visit some couple of really excellent schools. You know, coaching is not teaching exactly, but coaching certainly involves a great deal of teaching. And I've always been stunned by how useful it is for coaches to watch examples of teaching, especially really, really good teaching. And I think really, really good teaching is actually um, sometimes rare. I mean, my my sort of (laughs) my day job is trying to make it less rare. But there are really exceptional schools out there that um, do the unexpected and achieve incredible results. And I start my book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, by telling the story of showing a video of a math teacher to a bunch of football coaches in this country and, and the trepidation bordering on terror that I felt when I realized that, you know, that that was what I set out to do But um, before I showed the video. But I was amazed by how much they took from it and saw in it and were able to apply to their own lives as, as coaches. And I think it's, it's interesting because I spent a lot of time trying to develop a library of videos of coaches teaching football to show football coaches what it looked like. And in the end, I think in many cases, classroom video is more, is more instructive and more useful because when you watch someone in your own endeavor, you get distracted by a bunch of things that are less germane to the teaching. You know, you, uh, one time I showed a video of a coach who I thought gave brilliant feedback to athletes and he was doing an exercise. He was he the purpose of the exercise, which was irrelevant to me really in showing this video was that he was teaching players to, um, to make overlapping runs out of the back. And what I really wanted the coaches to focus on was the feedback that he was giving the players and the way that he was doing it. I thought he was excellent at it. And it was a, it was on a licensed course here in the U S and after I showed the video, there was practically a riot in the room because, uh, People were offended by the fact that he was teaching an overlapping outside back exercise in the back half of the field. And so then I said, well, good observation. Great. So if you do this exercise, do it in the front half of the field, but tell me about his feedback. And they couldn't, you know, then there was another 10 minutes of discussion about the outrage of him having done this exercise in the back half of the field. And it happened that the gentleman who was running the license course was there and he'd failed him in the license course for, for this, this error. And the, I just think it's typical of the way sometimes you get so vested in the thing that you, in the area of your passion and the area of your knowledge, everything that they said about him, you know, critically about, I assume was right, but they, I think that they struggled to see the teaching. And some, sometimes when you watch a coach in another, you know, in another sport where you watch someone in a classroom teaching, suddenly you're freed from all the passions about the content, uh, you know, that you carry with you. And I think you, in some ways you can see suddenly the forest for the trees. And so I, I think, you know, visiting some really exceptional schools around England, maybe we'll, uh, we'll go to Dixon's Trinity or some, uh, or some fantastic school with incredible, with incredible results. Uh, that's really intentional about culture and instruction. Uh, I think that would be a great way to spend a day. Nice. Love that. Um, I have to admit, I am looking forward to Sunday. Um, but, but the rest of the road trip sounds awesome as well. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point about, um, coaches getting distracted about stuff that happens in their own environment. Yeah. And I think some, some of the coach developers who will be listening to this potentially work with coaches who are in a different sport to their own sport and actually ha- not having necessarily that bias or being that entrenched in that river of thinking, um, gives them a super strength if nothing else, and some conversations I've had with people sometimes is to say, well, actually, if you're looking into a different world or a different context, um, it, it, it allows you to see stuff that other people just don't see. And I, th- I think that's a really interesting point when you draw that 
It, it frees you not to have to take a side on certain philosophical issues. You know, like what, uh, what formation and what you know what for, what formation are they playing and should they be playing in a three-five-two? Right, that you don't have to. If you're if you're a football coach and you're watching a basketball session, you don't have to worry about and be distracted by that. And inherently, what you're watching is a video that you are going to have to adapt to your own setting. And so, it kind of, are you telling me that it has to look look exactly like this? That whole conversation about like, are we talking about adapting or copying an idea here? Um, suddenly become suddenly becomes I just think a little bit more frame. We're always talking about stealing ideas and adapting them. And so I, I really really believe in watching practice video, training video across across disciplines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, you, you talked a little bit about schools and visiting some excellent schools. Yeah. Uh, if I was to change the first question I asked you about what's what's an effective coaching practice? Yeah. What what would be effective teaching practice? Are, are there some differences there? Yeah. Um, there would definitely be differences. Um, you know, in some ways, those are a little bit two different questions, and I'll take I'll try and I'll try and be give a brief answer to both of them. Because I think one of the key differences is, you know, for the most part, when in the, in a classroom, two of the key differences I think between cost in a classroom and coaching is, in most sports, um, we're teaching a shared endeavor. In football, we have eleven players, and and so we want we want to develop people who are decision makers and problem solvers. But in a maths classroom, an individual has to do it by themselves. And in a football setting, they have, you have to coordinate that across 11 people. And they have to make decisions very quickly. Speed is not as important in most cases in, in math instruction, not always. But you need 11 people to do it fast and in a coordinated way, faster than the defense can read it or the offense can, can read it. And so I think that's one, you know, that sort of shared decision-making endeavor is one key difference between coaching um, and teaching. But the things that I look for in a great classroom are, are often fairly, you know, I think it starts with a, a number of fairly mundane things. I think attention and just, you know, who's paying attention to what is incredibly overlooked. You know, great classrooms are often first and foremost cultures to me that, you know, they're always communicating intentionally to students, of, you know, in the classroom, what it means to be a member in this classroom uh, and uh, what their relationship is to learning. And they're very intentional. You know, we, we learn what we pay attention to. And so often athletes and students are not paying particular attention. So there are cultures that are, you know, there, I would say are very focused on the idea of, of attention and what we're paying attention to and what, you know, the cognitive scientist Daniel Willingham says, what we learn, what we, what we think about is what we learn. And that seems like a really simple statement, but actually guiding intentionally what, what people are thinking about is, is critically important. Another thing that, I, you know, maybe another couple of things that I look for in a great classroom. I think there's this narrative out there that uh, that's problematic in both schools and in sports setting that. And I think the narrative is, is a dismissiveness about knowledge. And I think so in the classroom, you might hear a teacher say, we don't want to teach facts and knowledge because we want to teach um, higher order thinking and creativity and, um, and problem solving skills. And so. And you can Google anything. So why would we bother teaching facts? We should be teaching these abstract thinking skills. And I think the answer to that is that a cognitive scientist would tell you that higher order thinking skills and problem solving and creativity are actually fairly domain specific. And that, you know, if you and I sat down and tried to have, um, a, you know, tried to do some creative thinking about particle theory or string theory right now, you know, we wouldn't get very far. I, mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I wouldn't get very far because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and you have, you, you know, you think more deeply about things that you know more about. You make associations with things that you know more about. You perceive more. You know, I think this is about things that you know more about. So if you're a coach who likes a constraints-based environment and you want players to learn from, from the perceptions that they make while they're while they're playing, the players who learn more and understand more and have a better vocabulary to describe to themselves and conceptualize the things that they're seeing will actually learn, will perceive more and learn more from that environment. And so um, I, cognitive scientists sometimes refer to this as the Matthew effect, which is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The people who go into an exercise with, or with more knowledge uh, learn more. And I think that schools and sometimes coaches are, um, are either A, less intentional or B, dismissive of, 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 uh, of, just, of just the knowledge and the background knowledge that's necessary to engage in higher forms. 
Yeah, fantastic. Lo loads to think about, I think, for coaches, coach developers. Um, and and look, I, you mentioned earlier when you were talking, kind of your, your book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. But I pulled out a quote, actually, linked around kind of learning and practice design, which I really liked, which is quite early on in the book. Um, performance in training is a false signal. What an athlete demonstrates she can do during a training session does not indicate what she will be able to do in a match. Um, and I thought that, that really grabbed my attention, because I guess seeing, seeing things happen in a certain situation in, in context in training, a lot of coaches might believe, well, they've learned it now, that, that's going to yeah. stick, that's going to be effective, and I expect to see that happen when, when, we, when we go into our competitive environment. But most coaches will probably know that's not quite reality and it doesn't, doesn't work like that. Um, I'd, yeah, I'd love to just understand a little bit more about that kind of quote and, and what, what, where and when does learning start to happen? Yeah, well, learning, learning starts with performance, certainly. So I think that this is a quote about distinguishing the difference between performance and learning. And performance is what you can do in the midst of learning uh, or in the midst of studying something. And learning is what you have after you factor in forgetting. And I just think that forgetting is the most overlooked thing in any in any learning environment. Right? As soon as we stop learning something, the battle against forgetting begins. And forgetting is a ruthless and tireless opponent. Uh, and you know, I, I think I, I, this the quote that you pulled out from the book probably comes very close to the forgetting curve that I map, which is you know, uh, what we know from cognitive science is that you know, half an hour after learning something, we've begun to forget it. And, you know, my wife sends me to the store to get a list of things and I'm, and she's like, here are eight things to get, go get them. And I'm sure that I remember them. And halfway to the store in the car, I remember four. And by the time I get there, I remember two. Uh, and, you know, we have forgotten almost everything that we've learned in our lives. And so the thing that we're not considering when we watch our players and we're working on pressing and we watch our players at the end of a training session and they seem like they're pressing really, really well, they, they are pressing well. The problem is it's Tuesday, and by Wednesday, they'll have forgotten a significant portion of it. And by Friday, they'll have forgotten a little bit more. And then when the match rolls around, they will have forgotten a little bit more. And so I think one of the one of the key things that a coach has to think about is retrieval practice, which is bringing things that we've begun to learn back into working memory from long from long term memory so that it's better encoded there. And so that I can not only retrieve it when I need it, that I can retrieve it quickly. Again, speed, you know, the speed of decision-making is so important in most athletic endeavors. And so there are actually two different factors here. One is like, do I get it into long-term memory at all? If I don't get it into long-term memory, I haven't changed, I haven't changed learning. Um, and this happens a lot. And then there's a second question of, and how quickly can I find it and access it in my long-term memory when I need it? Because for the most part, I'm going to need it in a fraction of a second. And so I have to be very good at recalling it out of my, out of my, long-term memory. Maybe this is an obvious follow-up question. Um, and what you said makes perfect sense. But what, what's the coach's role within that then? How does the coach help that process? Sure. Well, I think, I think one of the first things to think about is my, is my, just my, my long-term planning design. I think when most coaches, I may be, I may be overstepping in my presumption about coaches here, but I think when most coaches plan, they either plan but I plan a single session. We need to work on pressing. I'm going to do a session on pressing. Or maybe we plan in one week intervals, which is we're playing, um, we're playing center city United on Saturday and, uh, and they're going to press us. So I need to be, I need to be ready to handle the press. And so maybe we do that for two or three days. What the science of forgetting tells us is that if I want players to learn something and retain the memory of it and be able to do it over the long run, I have to come back to it multiple times, probably minimum of three to four times with the interactions with the content spaced increasingly, increasing spacing between interactions with the content over time. And so this would tell us that there's almost nothing that players can learn in a durable way in a single session. And in fact, if I want them to learn it, I probably have to start planning. And like one of the things I talk about in the book is planning in um, unit intervals of say three, four, five, six weeks so that I introduce we introduce the concept of pressing on Tuesday. We come back to it on Thursday. Come back to it next Thursday. We come back to it the Tuesday after that. And this struggle of players having to remember what we talked about before and maybe add to it is what encodes it deeply in their long-term memory. And, you know, I, I started off saying at the beginning that I think there are um, 
coaching is about long-term development among athletes and there are all these challenges for winning. And I think this is a, you know, around, this is one of the hidden distractions, which is we design our coaching around the fact that we want players to be successful and feel like they win on Saturday. But if I really cared about long-term, long-term learning among my athletes and didn't want to be on this treadmill where I'm constantly saying to guys, I thought, you know, guys, we talked about pressing all week. Why aren't we pressing? Or we talked about pressing three weeks ago and you've already forgotten it. It's like a lot of that comes down to the, the, the design of my training sessions and the need to plan over longer intervals. And maybe if I could just throw out one other practical thing that I think coaches could take right away would be after you've done something in training and you feel like you've gotten some level of knowledge and understanding of it among players, write it down in a list. So I have a list of these are 10 things that we've covered in the first three weeks of the, of the season. And this I would call my retrieval list, which is I want to bring it, I want to then bring it back into, into a training session to have players have to recall it, you know, <laughs> ideally quickly under, under duress so that they practice getting better and better at installing it in their long-term memory and recalling it out of their long-term memory. And one of the great things about retrieval practice is that actually the duration of time that you retrieve it is, is less important than the fact that you come back to it frequently with spaces in between. And so if I had this retrieval list, um, I could come back to something for five minutes, right? Right before a water break, after we're working on pressing, I could say, great, uh, keeper has the ball. We're going to build out of the back. What are all the things we need to remember when we're building out of the back? Kevin, yes. Josh, yes. Stuart, yes. Go, let's see it, right? Uh, and, you know, we retreat, we, re we, you know, we practice doing that again. Players struggle a little bit to remember it, but, but remember it in the short run, that was, you know, but it will help them to remember it in the long run. And so just dropping in small iterations of things that we've done before, retrieving them again, and being systematic about it, I think, um, would just be a powerful, you know, relatively simple addition to what coaches are probably already doing. Uh, I think the, the way you explained it, I'm sure lots of coaches are writing this down, thinking about how they can then plan over the next kind of six weeks or so, and the impact this can have on their practice. Outside of these really practical things that coaches <clears throat> try and just apply into their context. Is there anything else that underpins that, that, has, that can almost be a, yeah. I guess a barometer for how successful that, that is? I don't know, my head was going off coaching behaviors and that kind of route, but is there anything yeah. about the environment? Well, the other, I think the other thing that I would highlight is the, the incredible power of vocabulary, that we can conceive of things in the world because we name them. Um, uh, I'm looking out my window at a tree right now. So we have, I can conceive of that thing because I call it a tree, but if I have, if I understand the difference between a deciduous and a coniferous tree, suddenly I start to, you know, I start to see different things and understand different things about the environment that I'm perceiving. So that everything that I want to expect of my athletes, ideally I would define it for them so they understand what I mean, but ideally I would put some sort of a phrase or a word on it so that they can begin a, to see it and, and well, first to just conceptualize it. What do we mean by between the lines? What do we, you know, I think that's a phrase that coaches use all the time that I suspect that players, many players have no idea what they mean. I watched a, a youth football tournament a couple weeks ago. The outside back was, was way too wide. And, you know, the, the defense, the defensive shape was a mess and the coach was shouting, stay connected, stay connected. And I'm, uh, you know, watching the, the athlete that he was talking to, I'm sure she had no idea what he meant. Um, and so, but if we can solidify this, when we talk about stay connected, this is what we, this is what we mean. I can see it. I've done it. Uh, or when we talk about between the lines and then if I can have, like, let's say I had a vocabulary list for all the coaches in my club and we have that we use the same terminology for the same things consistently. And I know that all my players know it. Um, my daughter played football in a club three years. And one year she had a coach who talked about receiving the ball side on. And the next year she had a coach who talked about receiving the ball on the half turn. Right. So those are the same concept with a different vocabulary term for them. And so I think it was a long time before she connected what she knew about receiving on the, on the, uh, on the half turn to receiving side on. And so if the club had just had consistent terminology for that, right, we all know what this means. We're going to use it the same way. Then all of a sudden, I think players could connect their learning across across years and settings. Have them, um, you know, I, I just like vocabulary is supremely underrated in in shaping the way that people conceptualize the world. And so, like having a consistent vocabulary list 
either for either for a single team or for a club, I think is a really powerful environmental tool. Is is that would that be more effective if that's co-created between athletes and coaches, or, or is there is there certain uh, sorry coming from the coach? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is a great question, and the answer is I the short answer is I don't know, or the short answer is I think there are a variety of possible answers to, to the question. There's not one right answer. I think oftentimes, you know, we're sometimes dismissive of how much we know, and you know. As coaches, we do know more than our athletes, and we want them to discover things about it. And so maybe I might start by saying, um, uh, I might start by defining a term and saying, this is what it means to play between the lines. And as we as we learn things and discover things about it, I might, so I might add to it and say, great, so what we've now discovered is this, and we could put a name on that and say, we're going to talk about this consistently. But to some degree, like I want to be pretty disciplined about my language because they're, they're a good phrase. You know, I, I, I talked to a, a basketball coach at a very high level in the U.S. And he said of his coaching staff, we spent hours talking about the language we want to use, the, fra the phrases that we want to call things because precision matters and because these are cues that we're going to use to remind players. I was watching video. Uh, there's a basketball, another basketball coach that I like who produces videos for his players, and one of the one of the videos is called "Penetrate Pass Pass." And the idea is that in basketball, when one player penetrates towards the basket um, and the defense collapses towards him, then you want to pass out to another player, and then the defense is going to react to that player, and there will be a third player who's going to be wide open for a shot. So the sequence he wants is "Penetrate Pass Pass," um, and it, I think that it's great to have players maybe add to and augment the phrases in the language. But I think that that phrasing, which is like linking a series of actions together, is a really critical part of the intellectual foundation of the team. And I think as a as a coach, I'd wanna I want to be careful about giving too much of that away because the name has to be right and has to be memorable. And I want to use <laughs> I want to use it for a long time and I want it to be quick and pithy so that players remember it. I don't want to be Confused by when I say central, or you know, um, do I mean central up and down the field, or central across the field? Right. So um, yeah. Now that makes sense. I, I was listening to a, uh, a football coach um, a few weeks ago, and he was the language he used. He used then to his players. He explains the speed of our support needs to be quicker than the speed of our opponent's press. Mm. I think it's great language in it. Great phrase. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But he said it's just too much to be able to shout from the sideline or to be able to kind of get in there quickly. So it's just, for him, it's fast support. And as a group, they've taken that that phrase and just shortened it. And it's, he said that's really effective because it just gets a message across really quickly. I love that example for one of, because I think there are almost like two levels to language. One is the like, the definition of it, which is like the pace of our ball movement has to be faster than the uh, than the pace of the defensive and the defensive movement, right? That's like, that's what I'm going to, when I'm teaching it and when players are thinking about it in their, with their working memory, that's how I want to describe it. And it, it's a relatively nuanced description, but then I need a short version of it that I can use to cue it and remind players of, remind players of what they've learned when they need it, or they can remind each other what they've learned when they need it. And that phrase has to be abbreviated and short and pithy. Um, and memorable and cued to a series of actions. And so you almost need like, a, I think a two level vocabulary, right? A longer definition and then, a, and then a, a definition and a cue, I guess is, is how I would describe these things. One is like the definition should be elaborate enough that players understand exactly what you mean and all the things that go with it. But the, the cue is the word you use to, to remind players of it or to trigger it or to tell them that they're doing it, that either you can say to them or they can say in their heads. I feel like this is becoming a very public CBD session for me. So uh, <laughs> uh, I love that. And a definition and a cue, going back to that language and the, what you said earlier about precision matters. I think in there, that, that that's really memorable for coaches to think about and consider what that means in their own context. And are, are they are they keeping things clear for, for the players in their care? One of my, one of my favorite interviews that I did for the book was with Jesse Marsh, um, who's uh, probably the, the foremost American football coach, at least in uh, He's at Red Bull Leipzig now. Um, he's, he's obsessed with vocabulary. And one of the things I think he, so he spends a lot of time coming up with terms, both cultural terms, like how we want to be as a team, and technical terms, 
you know, for like how we want to play, especially off the ball, because so many of the behaviors that we want are unnamed. Um, and he, you know, he loves to build build stories around them. And he, there are many times where he, he asks the guys to participate in the definition. But I think he's, um, his whole philosophy of the game, his game model is expressed in these, in these terms. And I think it's really important to him that the terms are discrete and unique to him. Once someone else uses the same term on a different team, then it begins get, it gets muddy because he doesn't control the definition anymore. Right. And so it's not precisely exactly the definition that he wants for what I mean when we use this term on our team. And so like, so between the lines or, you know, like maybe that's a, or, or, you know, pressing, you could imagine eight different teams that have eight different definitions of pressing. And so coming up with a, with a different phrase for the different pieces of all the specific pieces of what we mean when we talk about pressing on our team, I'm just struck by how, how obsessed he is with vocabulary and how critical I think it is to his success. Yeah, nice, nice. I, I think we could probably talk, talk for ages uh, around this. It's fascinating. And I think, again, a really interesting avenue for, for coaches to go and explore a little bit more about. Um, one thing I'd, I'd love to talk about kind of briefly is around feedback and uh, I'm sure yeah. a lot of coaches spend a lot of their time when they're with their athletes giving feedback. Uh, I know you kind of talk about this a lot in your book. Um, are there are there things that coaches do um, from your experience where almost like habits that coaches fall into when they're giving feedback that are either really helpful or can be unhelpful to the athletes? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the interesting thing of it, uh, feedback is almost all of it is habits and maybe I would say like unacknowledged habits because we do it so often that we're already familiar with it and it seems so mundane to us that we often maybe don't submit it to the same level of inquiry that we do some of the other things in our, in our coaching. So, um, but I think one of the classic examples is, um, is giving too much feedback in a single iteration. It was a great phrase that a coach uh, who I met in New Zealand working with, uh, with uh, the All Blacks uh, rugby team down there came up, used it. He said, when you chase five rabbits, you catch none. And so I think a great example, and, and so a great example of this is, let's say we're working on building out of the back with our team. And um, I pause my players and I say, pause. Girls, when we're building out of the back, ball has to be struck at pace. Half the ball has to move quickly because we're trying to expose gaps in the, in the defense as they move side to side. And the ball has to be on the ground so, uh, and has to be struck to the back foot of our, of our, of our teammate. Uh, and your eyes have to be up when you receive the ball. And outside backs, we have to press high here to create, to create opportunities. So ready, go. And I want to see all those things now. And so one of the things we know about working memory is that people can't keep that many things in their working memory at once. So what's going to happen after this? Let's just assume that all that technical, all that feedback was correct technically. What's going to happen to the girls when they start to play? Well, either they'll be trying to remember five things at once, which is the same as trying to remember nothing at once. They won't be able to use any of those ideas. And maybe the quality of their play will actually get lower because their working memory will be so obsessed with all these things that they can't process. Or each of them will choose something at random to focus on. It may be the most important thing for them. It may not be. But I won't know what they're working on, so I won't be able to give them any further feedback on whether they're getting better at this aspect that they're working on. And so my next stoppage, so the stoppage is unlikely to cause learning. It's going to cause teaching, right? I've told them what I want them to do, but it's unlikely to cause learning because they won't actually use it and apply it in a focused and intentional way. And the next stoppage, I'll probably have to say the same five things again. And so this is an example, I think, of chasing five rabbits. And I think that coaches do this a lot. Uh, you know, I used to do it when in the cases when I coach. And the reason that I did it was because I wanted to, I wanted players to learn more and I wanted to teach them more. And in my effort to help them, to try to help them learn more, I think I had, it had the opposite effect. And so I think a more effective approach in that, in that setting would be we're building out of the back and I say, pause. Girls, when we're building out of the back, one of the most important things is the pace of our passes. Ball must move at pace very quickly from uh, among us, especially when we're, when we're swinging around the back. So let, Let's play now for three minutes. I want to see every pass struck at pace, and I'll be giving you feedback on how well you do that. Go. Yes, Carly, great ball. Harder, Sarah. Strike it harder, you know. And so now, players are thinking about one thing, and I'm able to tell them how they're doing at it, and they master that. And then maybe two or three minutes later, I say, great. We've really made some progress here. Now, 
in addition to the pace of the pass, I want us to focus on ball must be on the ground and let's receive across our bodies. Yeah. Right. And now again, like in the long run, I think we'll make more progress by doing it piece by piece by piece, one thing at a time, as opposed to trying to chase five rounds all the time. I think that's that to me. Actually, there, there are actually two two habits there that I would say are really important. One is this idea of, of one thing at a time. And the other thing I think is aligning our feedback, stoppage feedback. The thing that I say when I stop everyone and say, girls, the most important thing is the pace of our passes and the live feedback, which is what we say to players while they're executing. And I think there's often a misalignment between those two things. So I say, girls, the most important thing for us to think about right now is the pace of our passes. When we're building out of the back, the ball must be struck uh, at pace. Go. Great, great ball, Carly. Get wider, Sarah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, great, you know, great, great move, uh, Carlotta. You know, get into space, right? So now all of a sudden I'm talking to them about things that are different from what I talked about in the stoppage. And I'm not saying that every comment has to be what, what I talked about in the stoppage, but the message is, you know that thing I just stopped us to talk about 10 seconds ago? I've forgotten about it already, and I'm not even looking for it anymore. And so if it's not important enough to me to remember it and continue to give you feedback on it and focus on it, why would it? Why would you be important to you as an athlete? And so I think the message over time is things that I say at stoppages are just not that important, and I've already forgotten them a few seconds later, and so you can too. Um, I've got, I've written about five questions. I'm, I'm not going to ask them all. <laughs> um, you, for, first thing I'd love to ask. So that live feedback, that opportunity, we, we've given them with the players something really specific to go and work on. Yeah. And now as a coach, maybe I'm getting it right. Maybe my feedback is, is connected to the, to the point I just raised with the players. Does that feedback whilst the players are in, in action and playing, does that interfere sometimes with what they're able to be able to process and do? I'll give you an example. So I coach a, a women's senior team. Um, we were working on uh, wide play. I saw Kaylee move out wide. She overlaps on one. She, she created a great goal scoring opportunity. And as, as I was, Kaylee loved that. Brilliant. You've just done that really well. She just didn't hear a word of stuff. And, and yeah. it was a wasted moment. Um, how can I be better at that? Or how can coaches be better at that? It's a great question. And kind of saying the risk is not only that it's a wasted moment, but that Kaylee is used to sort of hearing your voice and having to ignore it because you're telling, because you're, you're forcing her to choose between working memories is working memories is the site of all conscious thinking is incredibly finite. It's very, very small. And so basically when you tell her more than she can process and think about and play at the same time, you're forcing her to choose between your voice and her play and most athletes are going to choose to play. And so then the sort of the habit she's getting into is hearing the coach in the distance and tuning it, tuning him out. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really good question. I think I, this is maybe why those, why language is so important because I, if I'm going to use language there, I either want to like use very abbreviated language, like yes, much better, Kaylee, or love it, Kaylee. Like yes, that's why, right? So it's it's a it's a reinforcement for a successful or wider, Kaylee, which which is just a very small thing that I don't have to think much about to process. Or I'm sharing the cue that reminds the that you know a cue is a remind is a brief reminder of something you've already learned. So if I'm trying to teach someone to do something or explain something to do somewhere or have someone do something that we haven't already rehearsed and practiced while they're playing live it's going to be really, really hard for them to do. So I, I think generally like, I can't teach something new while players are playing, but I can, if I'm really effective with my language and judicious in what I say, I think reinforce, especially when it goes well. I think one of the hidden dramas of the athlete's life is how often players do things well and don't know that they've done it well and so they fail to replicate it. I think we often think about, you know, positive reinforcement as a tool to make players feel better. Great job, Kaylee. But yes, Kaylee, that's it. And so she knows that she's done it well. And now she knows simply that I should do more of that. And then that, that I'm on the way and that I've executed well. Um, positive feedback is an incredibly powerful tool to help players know what to replicate. Um, and so uh, where am I going with this? I would just respond to you, like being intentional about how much live feedback and how 
the packets of information have to be tiny for players to be able to process them while they're also playing. Yeah, yeah. okay, I get that. Coach Lamov comes and makes a, a guest coaching session at Oxford United Women in, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and, and Kaylee's on the receiving end of some of your feedback. And I appreciate this might be ambiguous slightly because every player's different and every person we're coaching. But I've just received some really kind of concise, sharp and, and clear feedback from you. What, what does that feel like for the player? How, how does that affect their performance or their learning? I think this gets at why it's so important to align the feedback because what I'm trying to do is connect her experience to what we just stopped and talked about during this brief stoppage where we talked about why play and what the principles of why play are. Uh, and so now my goal is to help Kaylee understand whether she's doing it well. One moment's when I did it well. Yes, that's it. Yes, that's what we mean by why, especially if I can connect it to that vocabulary. Yes, that's what we mean by, you know, I don't know what a phrase you might use is, but like, um, uh, you know, that's what we mean. That's the wide channel. Yes. So now I'm like, I'm trying to associate the concept with her own behavior. So, uh, or why wider, why, you know, even wider, even wider Kaylee. And even like, you're probably right that it will may disrupt her performance temporarily. Um, but I, I think the live coaching really only works when it's, Choose it when it's language that players are familiar with, and it's a reference back to something else that we've had time to focus our working memory on in a previous setting. But hopefully, it makes players feel like they understand their own progress. Yes, that's good. Strike it even harder, right? Or yes, that's that's good. Even wider is like, okay, I'm on my way. I'm getting there. I'm making the right changes, but I can be even more bold about doing this. Um, or now you're there. Yes, like so. I mean. Playing football is a wicked, a wicked environment, which is I can make the right decision, but not have a good outcome, right? I can get wide and not get the ball, or I can get wide and make a bad touch, you know, and, and therefore my inclination might be to say, oh, I did it wrong, when in fact, I made the right decision. And so I think what I'm trying to do here is rationalize the channels of feedback that players get so they understand more reliably when they've so they have some, some stream of data other than, you know, did the play go well to help them know whether they made the right decision? Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess it, it's, it's reinforcing the intent over the outcome. So it's Coaching the decision over the outcome, that's right. Because so often, you know, basketball, the classic example is, you know, if you're defending a great shooter, he's going to hit. You can defend him perfectly. You can make all the right decisions and he's still going to hit the shot. But helping the player to understand, you know, it's basically a percentages game, which is if you do this correctly, you will reduce the number of shots that he hits by 10%. And in the long run, that's a game changer. But the player might not see that, right? All they're going to see is that he hit the, you know, he hit the open shot on me. And so helping them to attend to signal and not to noise, which is the signal is, yes, that's how we want to defend. That's what it looks like. Even, even if it, that, that's going to get us our 10% in the long run. I think that's kind of... Um, Rationally, yeah, rationalizing the, the, the feedback environment, I think, is a lot of what we're trying to do with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And look, I, I suppose um, a, a coaching behavior or a coaching skill that's really important to be able to give better feedback is that observation, to be able to observe kind of the right right information at the right time. So is, is what, what information is helpful for coaches to be able to focus their attention on so they can be overall more effective? Yeah, it's interesting because we've, we've talked a little bit about working memory. You know, with working memory is the site of conscious, any conscious thinking you're doing is you're using your working memory and any perception that you're doing, for the, for the most part, you're using your working memory. And working memory is really, really small. And so this is important for coaches too, because so much of what we do as coaches is observing our athletes while they're performing. And it's very, very easy to get to have my working memory be overwhelmed by the complexity of the visual environment, right? We're working on wide play. And so I have, I have the blue team and the gold team. Uh, and so I'm trying to watch, you know, 20 players, uh, and, you know, five critical movements over a stretch of, of three or four minutes. There's no way I'm going to be able to remember everything that I need to remember and think about that as a form of data, which is the stream of data is, are we positioning ourselves correctly in, in the wide channels or are we not? 
And so one, I think just thinking about sometimes like we don't like observation doesn't feel like coaching, but it's actually one of the most important things that we do. And one of the things I talk about in the, in the, in the book is, is turning your observation into data by writing it down. Right. Which is I have, I just have a clipboard or a note note in front of me. And I, in advance, I maybe make some notes to myself of here are the things that I want to see when we're working on wide play three or four key principles just by anticipating them and thinking these are the things that I'm looking for. It makes me more, it, it directs my attention more reliably to be watching the right things and to maintain my own discipline as a coach on the important drivers of success with wide play. But then if I've written these down, I can just start ticking them off. Yes, we did this. No, we didn't do this. So that when I make a stoppage, rather than re reacting to the last thing that Carly did, which was kind of an, an outlier, I have noticed that there have been six examples of times when we could have done X, but we did Y instead. And so then my stoppage is basically about the most important thing. And so it allows me to turn informal observation into sort of a form of data assessment. So I, I call this tracking, not you know, instead of just watching, I want to be tracking and, and actually holding a piece of paper where I can write things down, write down observations. And if I can, my preparation involves writing down the things that I'm looking for. I can tick them off, which allows me to process them much more quickly. So I'm not looking down and trying to write things out while I'm, while I'm observing and to sort of almost see them as like a histogram of here's, here's what the data tells me. I can make a very like, data-driven decision about what I've seen. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, a coaching friend of mine who was trying to explain something to me a, a little while ago was saying, well, actually, here's a list of things that I want to see. Yeah. Here are the things that I've observed. Well, I can then coach the bit in the middle. The, the, if I subtract one from the other, then there's my coaching point. And there's the things I go in and, and support the players with. And I thought that was a really simple way of being able to put it. It's, it's really, I absolutely agree with that. It's much easier to spot the gap between what you want and what you're seeing when you actually have what you want written down. And you can sort of see, you can almost compare, right? Here's what I want to see. Here's what I am seeing. It helps you, helps you to notice the salient details really quickly. So if I was going to add one more thing to like what's written down on my piece of paper or what's part of my preparation process, just taking the time to spell out um, when we're building out, when we're, when we're working on wide player building out of the back, what is excellent? Like, what is, you know, how will we know that we're going to be the best team in the league uh, doing this? What are the four or five key things that I'm looking for? Again, helps me to discipline myself to focus on the right things and to notice more the gaps, you know, the subtle gaps between excellence. I think a lot of times if you ask a coach, you know, what are you working on today? They'll say something like, we're working on building out of the back. But I think it's much more effective if you're more specific, right? We're working on speed of our play building out of the back. I think, you know, a lot of like Anders Ericsson's research um, on deliberate practice, you know, suggests that like a real specificity of a goal like that accelerates learning. And so, you know, maybe today we're working on speed of play building out of the back and tomorrow we're working on some other aspect of, of building out of the back. But that to me is a difference between like a really clear objective and a description of the activity. The objective is speed of speed of ball movement building out of the back. The description of the activity is we're building out of the back. Yeah, no, cool. I see that. Really, really interesting. And I think there's something very practical there for coaches to, to go and apply. And, and just in terms of writing it down rather yeah. than in your head, is that is that something that frees up your working memory as a coach then? So you've just got more, more space to better watch stuff and, and, and take more in in the moment. Yeah, and this is interesting, you know, just talking about the connection to the classroom. This is something that we do, I do with classroom teachers all the time. You think of the question you want to answer in class, and you kind of know in your head what the, answer, what the right answer is to, like, what's happening in the scene in the novel. But if you write out what the ideal answer is, not only does it help you see the gaps, but you can actually listen better to what your students are saying because you're not trying to remember. You're not trying to use your working memory to remember what you want them to say, and so it, um, it just frees a lot more of your, your mind to process. So if you have this reminder in front of you, you can glance down it from time to time. I think you observe and hear and see the experience of your athletes. You, you can be more present in the moment for them as a coach. Um, and I just think that that's, it's, it's easy to overlook and it's, it's easy to overlook how, how much, um, Inattentional blindness is a part of any any complex environment that we're looking at. We believe that we see it accurately, but we don't. 
there are always blind spots and always gaps and things that happen right in front of our eyes that we just miss because there are too many stories. You know, eight, 18 players uh, <laughs> uh, playing for five minutes is is too many stories and too much too much for us to it's too much to be able to see. Um, so uh, you know, as as much as I can I can help myself be as present as possible and as observant as possible, the better. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, uh, the, the last 45 minutes or so has just been brilliant. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Um, I've got three quick fire questions just to finish that. Depending on, on your answer, it might not be quick fire. It's up to you. Uh, the level of detail you want to share. Um, and some of these are from, from our audience kind of ahead of, ahead of the call today. So uh, I'd, I'd anticipate there's probably lots of coaches listening to this feeling like, right, there's now 15 things I want to go and apply in my coaching practice. Um, or make some changes. Is there any? Don't chase five. Don't chase five rabbits. Right. Do one at a time. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. There we go. But, yeah. Cool. Yeah, and I think um, you know, it, it's it's first of all, what you're probably doing as a coach is really you don't have to throw everything out. <laughs> like you hear a lot of things about how you know, take, in the same way that it takes time for an athlete to get better, give yourself the time and freedom to to struggle. I, th I think interestingly. One of the terms that we use to describe a really effective classroom is, is classroom that has a culture of error. And I would describe it as being, there being two components about that. One is psychological safety, which is if I make a mistake, people are not going to get mad at me. And the second piece of it is actually seeing the value and enjoyment in learning from mistakes. So if I can have students who are struggling with their maths, rather than trying to hide their mistakes from me and keep them from me and, and actually not tell me about them, but actually say, I'm struggling with, you know, I think I got this one wrong. Or, um, or if I say, uh, Tom, let's, let's take a look at your problem with the class because you're struggling with it. You're, you know, you're making some common mistakes that we're all making. We put it up on the board and we struggle with it and actually it becomes really interesting. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's fascinating to understand why I got that because I'm learning better. But that is, those are the drivers of a really successful classroom environment. And I think, I hope that coaches can see how valuable that is for athletes, right? When you're, when they're risk of, when they're not risk averse and when they have a growth mindset and they're comfortable with the idea that I have to be able to get things wrong and love learning from my mistakes, that makes me get better faster. That that's really intuitive to us. It also applies to coaches and adults, right? Which is like, I have to be comfortable with the idea of like, I'm going to make mistakes. And I shouldn't try to hide them. I should expose them and I should think about them and I should let, I should find people to help me study them so I can enjoy them because they're, they're learning opportunities that um, a mistake you could make from this conversation would be like, it would be um, one thinking that changes will be easy, like they will be hard and, and we'll figure it out as you go. And your version of correct is different from my version of correct. But also kind of the, the fun is in figuring it out and being comfortable struggling, struggling forward piece by piece, just so we want our athletes to. And so that just the mindset around growth, mind, it's intuitive to us that growth mindset applies to athletes. We have to push ourselves to make it intuitive that it also to ourselves that it also applies to coaches. Nice. Love that. Um, okay. Next question. And this, this leans more to the people who are, creating a learning environment for coaches. So yeah. um, we, we probably all sat in countless Zooms and Teams calls over the last year and, and online CPD. Um, and I guess a lot of it is delivered to try and support coaches and support their development. But does technology um, create a barrier or an opportunity for learning? That is a great question. And the answer is yes. It creates a barrier, <laughs> it creates a barrier or an opportunity for learning. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it I think both things are true. Um, and maybe I'll just certainly creates opportunities for us if we use it well, because perception is such a critical part of learning any sporting endeavor. Um, you know, any decision-making process starts from perceiving the right cues that help us to understand what happened and what could happen. And so suddenly, you know, videos become a commodity and it's easy to, you know, bring it out even live on the field and say, here's, you know, here on my iPad, here, here's what, Here's a video of us 10 seconds ago training, or here's a video of us, you know, in the game on Saturday. And so I think it can accelerate 
quality of athletes perception if I do it well and if I remember that it's always the human interaction and the cut you know we remember what we think about that's that Daniel Willingham quote and so my goal has to be to like to use the technology in a human face-to-face -face interaction that causes someone to think about something so if I just send out video clips to my players on their phones the technology might not help that much but if I say each of you, you know, each of you here are two clips, right, instead of 10 clips, so you can think deeply about them. And I want you to text me back with a couple of notes about things that you think you did really well that you like and things that you observe about that you want to improve on and be really specific. And I train my players to, you know, watch carefully, then maybe that will be productive. Um, and so I, I do think technology creates learning opportunities, especially around perception. I also think that technology one, I think it can be like this sort of sexy illusion. Like we think that like if I technologize something that it's going to solve the problem and, and it, it doesn't, right? Anytime a technology accolade says to me automatically, I become skeptical, right? Because no, no learning happens automatically. It always requires a, an intentional human interaction around it to make it work. But we think somehow the technology is going to you know, be a miracle and make that part go away. And then second, I think we have to acknowledge that technology probably degrades our attention when you're online, when you're on your phone, when you're on a computer, you're constantly switching among tasks very quickly and therefore causing yourself to build the habit of not sustaining focus and attention on a single task for a sustained period of time. And, the, you know, the brain is neuroplastic. It changes in response to the way that we use it. And so if I spend a lot of time in states of constant half attention, or I'm distracted by the things that are popping up on my phone, I degrade my capacity to sustain states of focus and attention for long periods of time. And so um, that's a real challenge. Uh, and I want to be intentional about, you know, when we're using technology, I want to, I want to, I want to use it to build states of focus, not states of um, distraction. And I also probably want to think about limiting uh, the amount of technology, you know, I just think like for a team, like when we, when we put our phones away and when we're all present in the room together, when we're not on our phones and there are no phones in the, in the locker room, you know, uh, I think those kinds of questions are really, really important. Um, because there's just a lot of research on the capacity of technology to create, to degrade people's capacity to sustain attention and focus for sustained periods of time. Fantastic. Uh, awesome. The final one to finish us off, uh, and, and for coaches who who have listened to this and had their curiosity sparked and thinking about, right, I've loved this. What can I go and look at, read, watch, listen to? Um, are there any routes you'd suggest that coaches go go down if, if they're interested in anything we've talked about today, or or just in terms of improving the experience for the for the athletes they they work with? Well, I think one thing that that is so valuable is videotaping or audio taping yourself. You know, you can put you can on your phone you can audio tape your, you know, your feedback and your stoppages, and you will learn so much by recording yourself uh, in the same way that athletes learn by watching themselves, coaches can too. Uh, especially if you can, you know, one of the strange things that's happened in the last year in 2020 is um, people are much more comfortable connecting to remote networks of people for intellectual work. And so if I don't have anyone in my club that I want to have a conversation about my feedback with, I can tape it and get together on a Zoom call with, you know, someone in Leeds and, uh, and someone in Norwich and build impromptu trusted networks of people who want to have deep conversations about what we do. And so I just think that, um, I think that's a really powerful thing for coaches to do. And then uh, from a more, you know, selfish self-promotion standpoint, if people want to read more about some of the things we've talked about, um, a lot of this is in the, the book that I just finished called the coach's guide to teaching. And, um, if you're interested in more in classroom practice, um, my other book is called Teach Like a Champion and the 3.0 version of it comes out this summer. And I also have a blog at Teach Like a Champion backslash blog where I just try and post things that I'm learning about teaching and coaching as I come across them. So um, uh, if the nerdiness of this conversation appeals to you, that's a place where they can, they can find out a little bit more. Well, I literally got your book in front of me. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm I think I'll put you to sleep, you gotta be careful. 
um, look, I, I think I'd love to kind of just continue this conversation for hours. I feel like we could, but I'm sure that there's lots of coaches, coach developers listening to this. And, and even if, if they've, they've taken away one thing, which will go and have an impact on their coaching practice. then for me, that's, that's going to be successful and that, that's going to be a positive thing. So, um, just a huge thank you, really. As I say, I've loved the last hour. It's been brilliant chatting to you and, and, um, thank you so much for, for giving up your time to, to talk to me today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's been, uh, I really enjoyed it and learned a lot and, uh, and hope to keep in touch. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.